0: beginning in verse 9, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, it says, this is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Amen. That's Paul's prayer. We're going to call it Paul's prayer for love, knowledge, and discernment. Paul's prayer for love, knowledge, and discernment. First of all, Paul was a professional letter, letter writer. Amen. Amen. He wrote letters to churches. He wrote letters to individuals. He wrote letters to pastors. He wrote letters to Titus and to Timothy and to Philemon, and, and Paul. Paul wrote his letters with skill. He was trained in in the rhetorical arts, and and he wrote his letters according to rhetorical patterns and style and. And put a lot of thought, and there's a process in those the writing of those letters, whereby he would dictate that letter, and a, and a scribe would take it down, and then and then they would go over it again, and, ma- and they would get written down. The the first time the scribe writes, he writes it in a, a sand tablet that 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 is erasable, almost like you remember the old magic eraser things we used to have, not quite that technological but the same concept and that just real quickly they could write in it and then they'd go back and transcribe it and then he'd read it again it was a a lengthy process for producing these letters and a lot of thought went into them and so Paul's letters all open usually by the same pattern not every single letter fits the pattern but he usually opened his letters by introducing himself and then saying a prayer for the people that were going to receive the letter and that's where we are in in this book of Philippians. That's what this prayer is. It's that opening prayer. Now, the church in Philippi was a church that was special to Paul. Some scholars have suggested that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite church of all the churches that he helped pastor and raise up. And 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 it, that may very well be true. That the the church was founded by Paul himself sometime in the early fifties of the first century. in 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 Acts chapter 16, and at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, it was sometime in the late 50s or early 60s, and Paul was in prison, and he had just received a monetary gift from the Philippians, and so there was definitely an overflow of of compassion and love and 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 a connection between Paul and the church at Philippi. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Philippians. Perhaps when you get to it uh, in your yearly Bible reading, it's one of those that you get through real fast because it's a short book. And, and maybe it's, it has been reduced to something that you rush through in a mad dash and check the box and say, yeah, I read my Bible. I'm, I'm working my way through. How many do a Bible in a year plan? Um, next year, that needs to be every hand. Amen? It's easy. If you've got a, if you've got a phone... You can do the Bible in a year real easy, amen? Just go and subscribe to one of the apps. It puts it up there every day, and you just got to find the time to read. It takes approximately three to five minutes to read anou- your, your one day for if you're reading through in a year. Uh, if you're reading through in a shorter amount of time, uh, I do the Bible in 90 days occasionally. and the, the Bible in 90 days takes about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half of reading daily to read the Bible in 90 days, but it's doable. I've done it several times, but I encourage you, nothing will enrich your life like reading the Word of God. Amen? That was free. Doesn't have anything to do with the prayer that we're talking about. But I want to stop in these three verses. Where I was getting with that is we're not going to skim past Philippians tonight. We're going to take a guided tour through these three verses because they're they're powerful. And Paul details his prayer request for his favorite church. And from that prayer, we're going to see how we ought to pray and what difference it will make in our lives. Amen? Beginning with verse 9, it says this, And this I pray. That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. It's a question that we all ask, Clayton has to ask himself every year at Christmas time, what do you give to someone who has everything? What do you give to the dad who has every tool, every tie, every fish and lure, every every hunting rifle? What do you, what do you give to the guy who has everything? Admit it, that's, that's the hardest question of the season. Amen. We ask the same tenor of question about prayer, but we do it in reverse. What, when, we, when we come to the Lord in prayer, the question is, what do we ask of the Father who has everything and can give us everything? What do we ask Him for? Amen. Amen. When God gave Paul, and I, I mentioned last week, I remember my grandma always handed us a Sears and Roebuck catalog, and and go through the Sears and Roebuck catalog. She'd say mark five things that you want. She'd give us a price range, and you mark five things that you want for Christmas. You were going to get one of those things, but you didn't know which one it was going to be. But you went through and you marked five things that you wanted for Christmas. When, If you'd imagine with me Paul taking this this book of things that he could get from God. You come to God in prayer, you can ask for anything you want to ask for, and he has the ability, amen? He is able to give, to bless, to do, and so Paul goes to the wish book and, and he, he's going to circle the things that he wants from God. And so he, he, when he's cha- praying for the church at Philippi, he lands on this one idea. He prayed that they would have abounding love. He could have prayed for powerful preaching. He could have prayed for beautiful singing. He could have prayed for meaningful testimonies. He could have prayed for full altars and large offerings. But Paul flipped past all of that and settled on abounding love. Because Paul understood that if they were filled with love, their preaching would be more powerful. If they were filled with love, their singing would be more beautiful. If they were filled with love, their testimonies would be more meaningful. And their altars and offering plates would be more full. Is that right? Would be fuller. All the English professors in the house. Their lives would be more fulfilled if they were filled with love. I want you to notice what Paul is doing. And this is where where we're trying to get to. We tend to, when you flip open the wish book? We, we want to address symptoms. We want to address the superficial things. Paul's not praying for the superficial things. We, we'd, we'd say, Lord, give us a better preacher. Amen? We'd say, Lord, give us, you know, more, more people in church. Give us better Sunday school teachers. Give us whatever, all these, these things that, that are surface things. But, but Paul is praying for the root cause that will bring about the things that would have been easy to name. Amen. He's praying that the church would be filled with love. Because love is the heartbeat of everything. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. How? By your love one for another. Amen. It's the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts. Uh, Amen. And we've been challenged by the word of God to love like we've been loved. Amen. And that love of God is the key to everything else. Kind of raises the question when we pray. Do we pray for results, or do we pray for root causes? Do we pray for God to give us the job, or do we pray that God would give us uh, favor with those that have authority over us, that when we go into the interview, God will give us favor? Uh, that's a prayer I pray commonly. I pray this, I believe, if I, I, this is just me. Amen. But Joseph found favor with those that were in rule and authority over him. I don't pray my boss would give me a raise. I pray God to give me favor with them. Amen. Because a raise is the least they'll do for me if I've got favor with them. Amen. when I've got favor with them, I can go to them as I did several years ago and say, you know what? I pastor a church. I'd like to take a 20% cut in pay and just work Monday through Thursday and have Fridays off. Nobody else in the company does that. I'd been there for about, I don't know, six or seven years. I've been there 10 years now. But I've been there six or seven years whenever I went and asked that of them. And, and because God give me favor, they let me do that. Still let me do that to this day. I keep waiting for the day that they're going to pull that rug out from underneath me, but God just keeps on sustaining. Amen? So sometimes we... We, we get caught up in this idea of praying for the symptom instead of praying for the root cause, the thing that really matters. And, and, and what Paul said was, I'm praying that you would have love abounding love, more and more. It's the imagery of a river that overflows its banks. And as as more rain falls and more streams flow, the river can't stay in its borders. It has no choice but to flood the plains on its left and on its right and softens the hardened soil around it. And the soil becomes fertile and ready for growth because of the water from the river. Amen. Paul's talking about a kind of love that's not contained. He didn't say, I wish you had love. He said, I wish you had abounding love more and more. The kind of love that overflows. Uh, Paul wanted to see God pour so much of who he is into who they were that the love of God would abound until it could no longer stay locked in their hearts and in their lives, but would overflow to affect the community around them, would overflow to affect Their brothers and their sisters, but also those that are not in the church would be impacted by that love that's overflowing in their hearts. Amen? He longed to see that love overflow from their lives into others until God produced hearts from that love that were ready and willing to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. It's easy to start saying, Well, I wish we had. Better prayer warriors. I wish we had a better preacher. I wish we had a better building. We've been there before. I wish we had a parking lot. With the, if just the parking lot was paved. And uh, Listen, you want to have revival? Pray for love. When people walk through that door, and they don't feel condemnation, and they don't feel shunned, and they don't feel shut out, but they say, you know, Brother McCall just feels like a family. That's love. That's the hallmark of an apostolic church. That's the hallmark of a Bible based New Testament church. It loves. Amen. And it loves when love isn't deserved. It loves when love isn't returned. It loves whenever no one else would love. Amen. It doesn't matter how they come. Listen, there are going to be people, and I say this, I've said this before, that there are people going to walk through those doors that are confused about their own gender. They don't even know their own identity. And they face judgment everywhere they go. We don't have to condone their lifestyle to love them, but we better love them. Because if we don't, we build a fence in between them and the cross. We might as well put up a post sign. You don't belong. Everybody belongs at the foot of the cross. Everybody belongs at the foot of the cross. I feel the Holy Ghost. Would you just lift your hands right now? Lord Jesus, give us a burden. Give us a burden, Lord. Help us to recognize, amen, that great love of God that we've received, that you've shown to us, and it has flowed through our lives, Lord. Let it overflow into the world around us, God. Help us not to be so harsh and judgmental sometimes. Help us, Lord, to be loving and caring uh, that people would recognize, amen. People, re- people know what real, genuine love is, amen. They they know they know the difference. My precious wife, when she gets upset, sometimes she gets syrupy sweet. I know the difference between sweetness that is anger and sweetness that is sweet. Amen. People know the difference between love that is real and love that is forced, that is fake, that is put on. Paul said, Here's the key. Philippian church in the heart of the Roman Empire. And, 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 and I'm doing some of my thesis work in the book of Philippians. And, and a, a culture that is dominated by uh, the imperial cult, uh, emperor worship, and, 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 and honor and shame, and all those things. Paul said, this is how you're going to reach your world. Let the love of God abound. Let the love of God flow through your life. The latter part of that verse, we see that Paul's measure of love is not to be confused with a 21st century repackaging of love. Much of what's sold as love today in the marketplace of public opinion is not love at all. It may be lust, it may be hedonism, it may be pluralism, supposed to be tolerance or compromise, but it's not love. Because, as Paul pointed out, love has substance. The love that he prayed for is accompanied by two things, knowledge and judgment. That word judgment is a, that would probably be better translated as discernment. It's the ability to judge things. It's it's a discernment. So that's why I put discernment on the title slide, slide. knowledge and discernment. Listen, knowledge and discernment are as much a part of love as salt is a part of seawater. Amen? They're as much a part of what genuine love is as anything in the world. They stand on either side of that abounding river, and they ensure that that river doesn't fill up with trash. Amen? It may sound contradictory to say, I want you to have abounding love, Uh, that overflows more and more, and then to say that that love is blessed with boundaries to keep it pure. The boundaries don't limit who the river can touch. The boundaries limit what can touch the river. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul said, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So the love of God, Paul says here, passes knowledge. Yet when Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, he prayed for them to abound in a love that's filled with knowledge and discernment. So which is it? Is love passing knowledge? Is it beyond knowledge? Or is it filled with knowledge? It's both. Amen. God's love passes knowledge because we'll never know how or why or ever understand how he chose to love us. Amen. It it defies our comprehension. It's beyond our knowledge to plumb the depth uh, and the reach uh, and the breadth uh, and the length uh, and the height uh, of God's love. Amen. We can write the most beautiful phrases, we can describe it with the with the greatest and most eloquent of language but everything we say and everything we do and every comparison we make, will fall short. His love is beyond knowing, amen? But at the same time that His love is beyond knowing, His love abounds in knowledge and discernment. Those things help us know what choices we ought to make. It's, it's possible even for a Christian to fill their days with activity and busyness that has nothing to do with uh, the things of God or discipleship or spiritual growth that has no other real purpose except to fill their days. But it's God's will for Christians to fill the days of their lives with treasures that will make their lives more full. With, and, and cause them to grow in discipleship. Amen. You understand that you're a disciple. Oh, but Brother McCall, I've I my sins, baptized in the name of Jesus, but the Holy Ghost got my ticket stamped, and I'm good, and I'm going to heaven. Amen. You've got to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You've got to be a disciple of Jet. That means every single day I'm growing. Because, my friend, if you're not growing, you're dying. Amen. That means every single day, a little less of me and a little more of him. And if that process ever stalls or ever stops, uh, I'm in spiritual trouble. Amen. Sometimes it's easy to sit back and wonder how folks backslide. I can tell you how folks backslide. They quit growing. They quit They quit being discipled. They quit allowing the Word of God to shape their lives. They quit allowing the presence of God to, to motivate them and move them and challenge them. And flesh does what flesh does. It pushes us further and further away from His presence. Amen? But it's God's will that we would have things in our life that would bless us and cause us to grow. Verse 10 says... You've got this knowledge and discernment through the love that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This is the why for the what that Paul prayed in the previous verse. He prayed that we would have an abounding love that abounds more and more with knowledge and discernment. And this is why. Amen. He wanted us to have those things so that we'd be able to approve things that are excellent. Excellent. that's 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 a unique word. A lot of things in life are good. But only a handful of things are excellent. As a matter of fact, good is satisfactory for most things. Excellent is above and beyond. It was Voltaire that has often been credited with the statement, the enemy of the best is the good. And not to wander off into philosophy, but somehow Paul is espousing that same kind of principle here. He understood that many times the choices that we make in this life are not always choices between right and wrong, but sometimes they're a wrestling match between what is good and what is better. Amen? Sometimes it's a wrestling match between what, what's good enough and what is excellent. If you were to pull into the car lot and go see Brother Andrew, and you, you drove in there in an old clunker uh, that was on its last dying breath, and you had the money to buy any car you wanted on the lot, you would be overwhelmed with choices. Listen, I'm sure Andrew could show you a whole lot of good choices. He can help you spend that money in a hurry. There would be a lot of good choices, but there's only one best choice. Out of all that expanse, there's only one that is the best, that's excellent. How do you know then by looking across a sea of sedans and SUVs and trucks and vans which vehicle we should purchase and drive away? How do we know what is excellent? Most likely we do what most people do. We we ask a little bit. We, we question the salesman. We look around a lot. We take a few out for a test drive. If you're like me, you figure out what the monthly payment's going to be. has a big bearing on the difference between good and excellent. Amen. We, we could buy, it comes down to the wire, we could buy the used two-door coupe with manual windows and still has a tape deck in it, but if it's the same price as the new four-door sedan with power windows and a Bluetooth hookup for your phone, why would you ever buy the manual windows and the tape deck? I'm going somewhere with this because there's nothing wrong with manual windows. We've all, well, not all of us, most of us have been down that road before. Amen. There's nothing wrong with it. They work. Matter of fact, they're a whole lot better with than windows that don't work. Amen. It's all right to be able to roll one down every now and then. They're good, but they're not necessarily excellent. They're not necessarily the best. What we're saying is this, there's nothing wrong, let me get right down in your living room, this is life class, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with reading a good book, but if we're going to read only good books and never read from the good book, then we're choosing the good and neglecting the excellent. Does that make sense? We can kick back and put our feet up. By all means, we need the rest. Even God rested after working six days. But if we come home from work and we kick back and we ignore our families just so we can relax, we're we're neglecting the excellent for the good. You see where I'm going with this? Many of the battles we fight are not fought on the battlefield of good versus evil. Many of the battles we fight are fought on the battlefield of good versus the best. And all too often we settle for good. When God's calling us to approve those things, that are excellent how do we know how to choose that which is excellent over that which is good we pray for the love of God to abound in us along with knowledge and discernment because that love of God and that knowledge and discernment that comes with it will help us choose the best over the good we have to ask ourselves you might want to ask yourself this evening do I choose the best You'd probably be shocked if you kept a journal for just one week of all the things you do in your idle time. How many hours a day are given to entertainment? How many hours a day are given to social media? How many hours a day are given to recreation? Compared to how much time is given to discipleship and devotion? Now, I'm not saying you've got to read your Bible all day long. I'm not saying you've got to pray all day long. But I'm saying there needs to be a balance between that which is good and that which is excellent. That that he's calling you to in your life. You may be surprised if you kept that journal to see how much the good is overwhelming, the best in your life. But pastor, it's not a sin. No, it's not a sin. You're just settling for, you're living here on the fringes of the blessings of God. When God's trying to get you to move into the place where he's pouring out his glory. I may not get done, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I got to tell the story anyway. I, I heard an illustration when I was a young man. I don't remember what preacher used it. I've used it several different times in my life, and I'll, I'll do my best to remember it just right. But there was a young man who dreamed all for years and years of going on a cruise. He priced the cruise, and uh, he got the ticket price. Uh, it was a couple of thousand dollars to do what he wanted to do, go where he wanted to go. And, and Brother Donnie, he saved up all that money. And then he got ready, he bought the ticket, got ready to go on his cruise, but he didn't have any extra money. He had exhausted everything he had. So Brother Timmy went out and bought some cheese and bologna and crackers, packed them in a suitcase, and he took them on the cruise with him so he'd have something to eat. He'd always drink water. There'd be water somewhere, but cheese and crackers. And, b- and he's going to get to see the Caribbean. He was going to get to sell the seas. He was going to get to fulfill his dream. Really, what he ate wasn't that important to him. And so every night at the cruise, he'd walk by the dining hall, and boy, they had those beautiful ice sculptures and all that food—just unbelievable. And and his mouth would obviously water, and he'd he'd think about how tremendous how tremendous it would have been to be able to eat in there. But then he'd go home, sit, I'd go back to his cabin, get out his uh, crackers and bologna and cheese, and just be thankful that he was on the cruise. It wasn't until the last day of the trip they were getting ready to go back and pull into the home port that, that it was dinner time and one of the attendants of the cruise caught him s- going past the dining room back to his room and asked him, son, aren't you going to eat? You know, I noticed you hadn't been in the dining room. You know, everybody needs to eat. He said, oh, I, I can't afford to eat. I brought bologna and crackers and cheese and that's good enough for me and he said son don't you understand the food was included in the price of the ticket some of us spiritually are living on less than what god bought for us there was a whole lot more included in this infilling of the holy ghost than you're letting work in your life and it's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're purposely running from the will and purpose of God. It's simply because it's all too easy to choose things that are good over things that are better. Amen? I told you was won't get in your living room. That's okay. Somebody needs to come in there and kick the furniture around every now and then and remind us that we have an obligation not just to ourselves but to a lost world to be the church he's called us to be. Amen? So you have to ask yourself, am I choosing the best? Am I I doing what he's called me to do? Do Do I give everything I have to meet my needs? Or do I give everything I have to meet the needs of the people I love most? And who love me most? Do I choose the best or do I choose the good? How do I spend the moments before a church service starts? Do I catch up with friends and fellow worshipers or do I find a place of prayer? Do I choose the good or do I choose the better? How do I, how do I treat my Bible reading? Do I read my Bible every day just to soothe my conscience so I can check it off and say, I read my Bible today? Or do I read it with it? with interest, taking notes and asking questions and imploring the Word of God for answers because I'm in love with that Word and with the God who wrote it. Do I choose the good or do I choose the better? It's possible to live our lifetime filling those years with good, but it is far more fulfilling and pleasing to God to fill those years with the best. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to cause anybody to walk out and say, oh, my pastor was a little harsh tonight or whatever. I'm just simply trying to get you to take a long look at how we live our lives and ask yourself, am I settling for crackers and cheese and bologna when God wants to feed me at the buffet table lobster and steak and all that good stuff? Amen. Am I settling spiritually for something far below what God has called me to have simply because I'm so enamored with the good that I'm not willing to pursue the better, the best? Paul uses a unique word in the latter half of this verse that has no precise translation into the English. There's no English equivalent. It's translated in your text as sincere the meaning of the original word is best described through a pair of word pictures. If you'll deal with bear with me, I'm just going to draw a picture with a story and and try to give you the meaning of this word. The first picture would be that of a merchant standing on a cobblestone street by his cart and beside him stands a customer with a purse and a grin and the merchant is holding up a silk dress towards the sun so the woman can see if there are any flaws or defects in the dress. And if they are, if they're there, the sun will surely spotlight each and every one. It'll show where the fabric is thin. It'll show where the stitching is flawed. But the grin of that customer implies that there's not a single flaw. Every seam is secure. Every stitch is perfect. The dress is sincere. One sense of that Greek word is just what I said. That which is judged in sunshine or that which is clear of flaws or imperfections paul's prayer for believers was that they would abound in love and knowledge and discernment pursue those things that are excellent so that the light of the word and the spirit of god could shine into our hearts and find no flaw that's that's what it means to be held up to the light Amen. Sometimes we'd do well to hold ourselves up to the light and determine whether or not we're sincere. The other word picture would unfold in the same marketplace, but it carries a, different, a similar but different image, similar meaning, different image. The other sense of that Greek word literally means without wax. And in this picture, the merchant stands beside the customer with a vase in his hand. The merchant showing the customer the vase, and the customer appears more than satisfied that the vase is sincere because dishonest merchants would often cover the cracks and the defects in pottery with wax. It was the early version of superglue or caulk. But a sincere vessel was a vessel without wax because there were no defects, there were no flaws sincere Christians live without wax. There's no need to hide hypocrisy if there is no hypocrisy. There's no need to... To, to cover dishonesty with more dishonesty if there is no dishonesty. So Christians are called to live a life that is sincere, amen, that can be held up to the light, that can be inspected uh, in the light of God's Word and truth and spirit, amen, lives that you don't have to add a little wax to to cover up the flaws and you'll know, shine it up and make it look like something that it is not. Christians are called to live a life that is Sincere, real, genuine, without flaw, not a fraud, not a fake, but the real article. The other thing that he says is to be without offense. It's serious for us to stumble into sin or to be offended. And it's even more serious to cause someone else to stumble into sin or to become the offender. Paul prayed for us that we would live without offense until the day of christ now we've been talking about this prayer did you know paul put an expiration date on this prayer this this prayer has a best by date amen once the lord returns for his church and he translates us from here to heaven we'll no longer need this prayer We'll no longer need the knowledge and discernment to fight the battle of choosing the best versus the good. We'll no longer need to examine our own hearts by the piercing light of God's word and spirit. We'll no longer need to keep a close eye on where we walk lest we stumble and, 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 and cause an offense or become an offense or have an offense. Amen. Because just as sure as there is this day, there will be that day. Amen. And on that day when he comes back, everything is going to change. Martin Luther said that there are two days in my calendar. This day and that day. And I live every day with the knowledge that that day is coming. Amen. That's what Paul said. I want you to have abounding love, more and more with knowledge and discernment and and and, and that would that would overflow into the hearts and lives of those around you. I want you to have these these things that are powerful in your life until the day the Lord returns. Amen. That portion of Paul's prayer gives us insight that we're to strive and live with sincerity and without offense from now until the day he returns. This isn't a short-term calling. This is a lifetime calling. Amen. The call to sincere discipleship affects everybody in the room. It doesn't matter how long you've been a saint of God or how how many years you've gotten this thing or how few days or months you've gotten this thing. And no one is exempt from the call to live with sincerity and without offense until the day the Lord returns. Amen? One more verse. Verse 11 says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So how do you know if you're living the life that Paul's describing? How do you know if you're living the life that chooses the best instead of the good? How do you know whether or not we're living what Paul was praying for? There's a way to know. You know by the fruit that you produce. In the spring each year, something almost miraculous happens. In communities of cold climate, trees that were pounded by snow, covered in ice, and beaten by the wind slowly awaken to life. And as the weather warms, the trees brighten with beautiful, vibrant green leaves. Then blooms shoot forth from their once barren branches. And before long, apples are hanging there ripe for the picking. Why? Because fruit trees bear fruit. You don't have to know who planted it. You don't have to know when it was planted. You don't have to know how many storms it's endured. You don't have to know how many times it's been pruned, how many raccoons have climbed up in its branches, or how many birds have nested there. You don't need to beg or barter or bargain or plead with the apple tree to produce apples, amen, because fruit trees bear fruit. All it needs is a little time, a little sunshine, a little rain. Sometimes they need a little fertilizer and tender love and care. But we don't have to know anything about science. We don't have to know anything about botany. You don't have to have a green thumb to eat a crisp apple on a cool fall day. Because fruit trees produce fruit. In like manner. Listen, if you don't get anything else I'm going to say tonight, you need to hear what I'm going to say in the next five minutes. The spirit-filled Christian bears spiritual fruit. It's a fact. It's an, it is a settled fact of the word of God. It's a settled principle and law in, in the, the creation of God, that which is, is fruit bearing, bears fruit after its own type. Everything produces, amen. And the spirit-filled Christian will produce spiritual fruit. You don't have to beg God to get spiritual fruit. You don't have to barter with God to get spiritual fruit. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you're going to bear fruit. Amen? You don't have to pray and demand that you, Lord, I, I need you to help me bear fruit. Amen? You just need to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're filled with the Spirit, if the Holy Ghost is active and alive and working in your life, listen, honey, it produces fruit. That's just the way it works. If there's not any fruit, you need to find a place and pray through again. Amen? And Paul told Timothy, stir up that gift. Because if, if, that, if you you, quit, you find yourself in a place where you're not as fruitful as you used to be, amen, it's time to stir up that gift. Because Christians will be marked by the fruit in their lives. Listen, Christians will love when the world hates. Christians will be joyful when the world is depressed. The church will have a true and lasting peace when the world is in chaos. The church will show long-suffering when the world is impatient. A true follower of Christ will be gentle when the world is harsh. will be good when the world is evil. We'll be meek when the world is proud. And will have faith when the world is filled with doubt. And will be self-controlled when the world is out of control. Why? Because the Spirit produces fruit. Always has, always will. The fruit of God's Spirit will automatically grow in our lives as long as we're filled with His Spirit. It's really that simple. It's all by Him, and it's all for Him. That's why Paul ends this last verse with these words we're to be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So the fruit in our lives comes from God and is intended to glorify God. Amen. We should never see the fruit in our lives as a reason that others would applaud us or, or would pat us on the back or tell us we're doing a good thing. We ought to seek the fruit of the Spirit as an opportunity to glorify God. Amen. It comes by Jesus Christ, and it comes for the glory of God. Amen. And so the fruit that the Spirit produces in our life, anybody know what that fruit is? Paul said in Galatians 5 and 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Everything flows from love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, longsuffering. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, he said, there is no law. Love. Out of love flows joy. Out of love flows peace. Out of love flows long-suffering. You ever wonder how to be patient with people when they're just riding you the wrong way? Learn to love. Because long-suffering flows out of love. Gentleness comes from love. Goodness comes from love. Even faith rises from love. Meekness, which is humility or humbleness. And temperance, which is self-control. All of those things rise from love. Paul knew what he was praying. He understood exactly what he was saying when he prayed that you would be filled with abounding love. Amen. Would you stand with me? What we need to pray when we pray, then, is similar to what Paul prayed. We ought to, we, we, the reason we address these prayers is because we find in them examples. And I'm going to give you an example of a good kind of prayer to pray. You ought to pray for the abounding love of God to fill your heart until it overflows. It ought to be something you pray every single day. Lord, let love like a river flow through my life. I, Let love like a river affect the world around me. Let love like a river amen, flood my heart and my soul. uh, Amen. I can't treat my brother wrong uh, when I've got love flowing out of me. Amen. I can't can't defraud somebody when I've got love flowing out of me. I I can't find the, 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 the ability to be dishonest with somebody when I've got love flowing out of me. Amen. It takes off the harshness. It takes off the edge. It takes off all the carnality that tries to rise up when I allow the love of God to overflow in my life. and Lord, would that love give us knowledge and discernment to choose that which is excellent, to pursue the excellent things. Lord, not to settle for where we are, not to settle for what we have, not to settle for just good, but to pursue that which is excellent. Let us pray when we pray for the Lord to help us to be sincere. Amen. To live in a way that the Word of God, the light of His Word, the light of His Spirit can shine into our lives. Uh, Amen. That we're not hiding anything from Him. That He can see it all. And that He'll find no flaw and no defect. Let's pray that we don't have to put wax on to cover up the flaws. You know, you... You the company's coming over quick, clean the living room, get the kitchen straightened up, get the dining room, you know, just you don't have to worry about the rest of the house. Just those three rooms. You know, real quick. So that when they come to the door, they'll think we live neat. You, you, you've all been there. You know, we do the same thing spiritually. We daub a little here and a little there and try to cover up our burrs and bad edges and that's not what he's saying live in such a way that you don't need any wax that's the challenge amen those are the things that paul prayed for that we would then bear fruit the kind of fruit that comes from god the kind of fruit that ultimately glorifies god that's what you ought to pray each and every day lord give me love Give me joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Let those things flow through my life. Help me pursue the better instead of just the good. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for your presence, and I feel so rich in this room. Lord, you're speaking to your church, not just this pastor, but you're speaking to your church this evening, Lord. And you're calling us to examine our own lives. To hold ourselves up to the light of the word of God, Lord, and to recognize the places where we need to make some changes, amen, where we need to pursue the better instead of the good, where we need to turn our hearts more towards you, Lord. I'm asking to help each and every one of us to continue to grow spiritually, amen, that we would produce fruit, that we would would show forth the fruit uh, of the spirit in our lives simply because we're spirit-filled, amen. Help us to be overflowing. Uh, with the love of god that it would abound more and more uh, until it reaches a world around us Uh, help us to have knowledge and discernment uh, that we'd pursue those things which are excellent uh, that we live with sincerity and without offense uh, that we'd bear fruit that comes from you and glorifies you in jesus name would you say amen